Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Previously on the Mike Wise Show. He's very sensitive, like all probably tall people are. And mm-hmm. he's and I could still see it sometimes when when Charles needles him and it goes too far. You could see Shaquille like almost fuming, like, I'm gonna slap this guy right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> do you do you ever see that? I do, I see it. And I remind him, you know, just play nice. I tease them both. Because Charles' uh, mother and I were very good friends and um Yeah. We send them notes. Okay, you be good. You know, just teasing them, but that's the human side of him. And sometimes people say hurtful things, and it, they don't mean to be hurtful, but the way that it comes out, it, it hurts his feelings sometimes. The big man with feeling. J.A. Adande is today's guest. He is a man of many talents, writing, television, radio, and now academia. All right, Darlene, take it away. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Welcome to the Mike Wise Show. I am so excited to welcome J.A. Adande to the program, uh, a guy who's been more than just a colleague of mine. He's probably been a friend. I call him that. I've, I've uh, been a guest, uh, a proud guest of his, uh, of his in the um, Medill School of Journalism, where he's the sports journalism. Uh, shoot, you're ahead of the department, right, at Northwestern, Jay? Not quite, but director of sports journalism. I don't have anybody working in under me, so I guess I don't have a department. But <laughs> you have, inter- have a nice you have, title, you, you, you have assistants or interns, don't you? No, I mean I have colleagues, but I really don't have anybody working under me. Or for wow, me. Okay, just fake it. Just say you're like you're, you're, <laughs> um, Jay Jay Adande, as you as most of you know, uh, worked for a decade at ESPN. Um, I got to know him a little bit when he was a columnist for the uh, LA Times, Los Angeles Times. It was it was kind of his first. We, we go back to my Washington Post days, though. Oh, I take that Think back. Yeah, it. because when was yeah, your first you're year in New at the York. Post? I was in New, I was at the Post from '94 to '97, so that was your your Knicks coverage days, right? This is correct. And I had just left the Sacramento Union, gotten a great job at the New York Times, and 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 we probably uh, saw each other at least ten times a year, just covering the Bulls. And uh, seeing the Bulls in the, the Bulls in the title games and and the Knicks and uh, that's right. One of my favorite memories, by the way, Jay Adani. Before we get into <laughs> the uh, the news of the day and the NBA and, and whatnot, is um, I I remember going to Portland one year and 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 Frank Isola of the New York Daily News. We were I think it was some playoff game for something and and he said to me, Hey, um, look. Uh, you can get some Nike discounts at this at this Beaverton store, and um, it's the employee store, but they give riders discounts. I'm like, really? And all of a sudden, I, I guess a lot of riders were at the uh, either the Western Conference Finals or whatever that year. Adande and I think it was Michael Wilbon rented a van and and basically packed it up with sports riders, and they cleaned up. Like they walked in there like oh, they yeah, were that the was, athletes. That was from Seattle during the finals. Yeah, that was the '96 Bulls 
Sonic That's right, ninety six Bulls. <laughs> so the funny thing, so there were there were two off days between like game three and four, I think. We're, we're out there in Seattle, and um, you know, Bulls were up like three nothing, so it's really no news. So we go on the first day of, of the press conferences, and uh, so we wrote one story, and then we all we got up early the next day and filed our stories. And we were going to skip out and play hooky on, on the media availability. Because what were they going to say? Nothing had changed, you know, yeah, between the, the previous day sweep. and that day, right? The, the there was no sweep. news, right? We all thought the Bulls were going to sweep. So the, our editors got a little suspicious because we filed our stories at like 9 a.m. Eastern time, <laughs> 6 o'clock Pacific. <laughs> you know, right. like, what are these guys up to? <laughs> and, yeah, we hopped in the van and drove down, I guess it's like two and a half hours or something, down the coast to uh, – to Beaverton and hit up the employee store and did damage. That was my that was my second time going. I, I went after the Final Four the year before. No, this was 95. this was incredible. This was sort of um, really pre big internet. Maybe the cell phones were pretty big at the time, and I just remember people calling from the aisles and basically saying, uh, "John, John, what, what do you want for your birthday? Cole Hans? Okay, uh, don't worry, we got it." And it was like we were the athletes for one day. I look at it in hindsight and I go, "Oh my gosh, like." We, we broke every rule of etiquette and professionalism, a conflict <laughs> of interest. Do you look, do you look at it now that you're, you're basically director of sports journalism at Northwestern and think to yourself, oh, you know, how can I tell my students not to take a, a freebie now? And then when we do it, we got these but incredible it, but it discounts. Wasn't free. It wasn't but it free. Was like, we we got, but come on. We got like, we were paying, we were paying $50 for like $300 shoes. You, you got the NCAA mentality where they're like, oh, you can't have special benefits. Like there's a difference between <laughs> getting free stuff and having special benefits, right? Like if you're going to turn down the, the Nike employee store discounts, then what, were you not going to sit courtside with the, the seats that they gave you with your press pass back then when, you, when we were sitting courtside? Uh, so, you know, there's a difference between awesome. special benefits. And free stuff. <laughs> no, I, I don't think we would. I don't think we, we, as swag goes, we didn't go out on a limb. But I'm telling you that that was I think I did Christmas shopping there that year. And I thought, how oh, am I yeah. going to how am I going to kill Phil Knight in a column, how he's corrupting our young men <laughs> with, with this stuff? So uh, Jay Adani is my guest. Uh, he's he's covered the NBA uh, every shoot. He's uh, he's written about almost everything. Um, he worked for The Washington Post, The L.A. Times, ESPN for 10 years. I, I, for anybody out there that's sort of because we're in such a weird time in our in our profession and, and and so many people that you and I either grew up reading or know about all of a sudden are either working for a team writing on their website or and we, we don't even call them sellouts anymore. We're just happy they have jobs or or they just had to completely switch careers. I know you weren't forced out of journalism. But you went you went into teaching because you wanted to. It was a better, it was a better lifestyle, and and it was something very important to you because you went to Northwestern yourself. If you had to give a quick synopsis of, or or some advice for anybody that's sort of thinking about leaving an industry that is so topsy turvy right now and trying to recreate themselves in the next thing, what would you say? Wow, um, we kind of have to build up to it. You know, this wasn't a sudden thing. I I had been teaching as an adjunct professor at USC for 12 years. So I built up a little credibility in this space. Um, so I think that helps. Um, in particular, in the world of academia, to not have advanced degrees, postgraduate degrees can be a hindrance. This was the one case where it wasn't going to hurt me because I had all I had was a bachelor's, but my bachelor's is from Northwestern. So my argument was going to be that if this isn't good enough, what are you saying about our program here? That my bachelor's degree isn't good enough for me to get a job at Northwestern. So um, 
but it, it helps to think ahead. And, you know, maybe you should always be thinking about your, your next move even before you've made your first move. And some of my students who were undergraduate journalism students were talking to me about, you know, should I get a master's? And they, they we have an accelerated master's program at, at Medill where you can get two degrees in four and a half years, basically, if, uh, if you get on the program right away. And uh, so they were saying, you know, I think I kind of want to get my master's and, and I don't necessarily think you need a master's in journalism. If you have a bachelor's in journalism, you know, I don't know how much. No, 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 no. Do not, do not say that we are here to pump your grad school program. <laughs> well, well, no, well, but if, if you're going to get one, get one if from, you, if you don't, if you Columbia don't have, Northwestern. if you don't have undergraduate experience, but, but, um, you know, I don't, it's a little redundant to get both, but, as some of my students said, well, you know, if I want to teach one day, this would make it easier to, to get a job at university. And that is absolutely the case. So, you know, if you're thinking, okay, so you, you might want to get a master's in journalism, not necessarily to help you out in your journalism career, mm -hmm. but to help you out in your post-journalism career. What do you tell people, what do you tell your students when they say, how am I going to get a job and what do I do to get a job? Because the, what we learned as classically trained journalists where we went to school and what we did and, and paying our dues at different places, there's none of that anymore. There's sort of this, you know, what I call the MSJ world, the multi-skilled journalist, where if you're not blogging or taking videos with your iPhone and putting something together and then creating a Facebook Live in addition to your story and everything else, you're, you're not doing your job it's such a different business. What do you what do you tell them? All of those components that you talked about are absolutely um, a part of it today, but it's also a benefit. the The biggest hindrance to getting into the business when we were coming up was either getting published or getting on the air, right? And now, yeah. anyone with a cell phone, you can publish yourself or you can broadcast yourself. So those barriers are gone. You know, examples of what you can do and having other people see what you can do. There's no barrier to that. Getting paid to do so is a little more difficult. And the path, the standard path where you'd start off at a smaller newspaper and covering high schools and work your way up to colleges, maybe cover the pros there or, or go to a bigger paper and cover colleges and then cover the pros and, and have the opportunity to, to travel and cover a multitude of events. That path doesn't really exist anymore, at least not in the, in the normal regard. But um, there's so many other entries and there's so many different jobs now. So there yeah. are those jobs that you alluded to working for teams that didn't exist before working for leagues. You can, you can be a play-by-play -play person calling play-by-play -play of a video game, you know, in the NBA 2K <laughs> league and, right. and covering that. These and that's, a jo that's a job. That's a job. Or shoot. That, yes, you, you know can, how many you can be a job uh, of a, or, or playing a video game or doing play-by-play -play <laughs> of a video game, you know, in these live contests that they're having. So crazy. there's a lot of opportunities out there. And one thing I'm finding too is you might just have to be a little more patient. Um, yeah. I don't think it's all doom and gloom, but it's a little, it's, you might not step out right away and step into a job and have a job waiting for you. But if you give it a year, I'm, I'm finding with a lot of my graduates that we've had both undergraduate and the graduate program, you know, it might take a year to sort of settle, settle down and sort yeah. things out. But there, there's stuff out there. There are jobs out there. There's social media positions that didn't exist 10 years ago. Every you, team has a social media department now and, and digital video department. Um, so you're right, not as many independent jobs, but there are jobs where you can use your reporting and your storytelling skills 
get paid to do so and work in the field of sports. How old were you when you got the job at the LA Times as a, as a columnist? <laughs> I look back now and it seems absurd. I was 26 years old. Oh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, that you were like in the, I, I mean, one, you joined, one, you joined, what year, that was, what year was that? 94? That was 96. 96. I'm sorry, 1997. 1997, right. You went from the Chicago Sun-Times to there or the Post? You were the Post. From the Post. Yes, I've been Post for a few years. So I worked at the Sun-Times for two years, and my boss there, Rick Jaffe, he had stopped at the LA Times as he was working his way up the the ladder. He made it to the National when the National folded. Rest in peace. Uh, He went to the Chicago Sun-Times and was a sports editor there, and he hired me there. And we used to talk. He knew I was from LA, and we'd sort of talk whimsically almost he'd say you know if i ever get back out to la i'm gonna bring you back out there with me and uh a year later i went to the washington post and then a year after that he went out to the la times and you know we kind of forged the connection and yep. i said okay let me know when you have an opportunity and, and in 97 the, the opportunity arose and and he brought me he stayed true to his word and brought me yeah. out there and, and brought me home and that was probably the only place i would have left the washington post for i really like the washington post yeah. um you know, loved working at that first-class news organization, and uh, but the chance to go home and to write a sports column for the newspaper I grew up reading, having delivered to my my doorstep, I couldn't pass that up. Yeah, and and I I bring all that up because that at the time, 26 years old, I I can't stress to our younger listeners, but also all everybody out there, you get a, a columnist job at the LA Times. At that time, the the, the columnists of the LA Times included Jim Murray. Um, shoot, yeah, Mike Downey. Right before, Mike Downey, Scott Osler. Um, the, the names were, and people don't remember these guys now because they've sort of become almost mom and pop shops next to all the big gaps and Banana Republic franchises out there that uh, that we've worked for, by the way. But but the bottom line was that was a big deal at the time. And now it, it's like, it, it's me too. Like if you told me I was going to work 10 years at the New York Times and another 10 at the Washington Post and then leave, either of those places. I mean, that was the dream job. Nowadays, the dream job can be three different things. I mean, it just, it's such yeah. a weird world. Um, I get, I, I couldn't believe I, you know, signing to, to leave the LA times, I had to work up the nerve to do it. You know, I knew I, and I couldn't say it at the time, but I knew I had something lined up at ESPN. It was, it was a matter of finalizing everything and making it formal, but you know, so I, I knew I had a great opportunity waiting, but I still couldn't believe I was, getting ready to hand in my resignation to the LA Times. Um, I had to look myself in the bathroom mirror and, and sort of steal myself up to it. And what I thought was really amazing was a couple years later, a few years later, um, when Howard Beck left the New York Times to go to Bleacher Report. And at yeah. one point that would have been, A, unfathomable, you know, before we knew what a Bleacher Report was. And then in the early stages of Bleacher Report, when it was just kind of slideshows and, and clickbait and stuff like that, to think of leaving the New York Times for that. but by the time Howard Beck left the Times for Bleach Report, it made perfect sense, right? It wasn't even that much of a wow. You said, oh, yeah, yeah, well, of course I, he's doing yeah, that. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like newspapers I feel like newspapers were king probably, shoot, or last king around 2002 or something, um, yeah. 2000, 2002. And then all of a sudden, it was, if it was an ESPN.com or the Huffington Post or all these incredible sites that, that, uh, that capitalized on the fact that we gave away our content for free, the bottom line is that they, they, the prominence of them died and people took different jobs. I, I could talk about this all day, but you came along at a time when, um, and everybody's either fort, fortuitous 
or unlucky with some of the teams they get to cover in the towns they're at. And it, and it dictates their career sometimes because of their Q rating. Sometimes some of the best riders are stuck in these small places or places that just never win. And you never hear about, you covered the Chicago Bulls during their heyday. And I'm talking to a guy, Jay Dondi, who's now, I think, 48 years old, um, 20 years after these incredible Bulls teams and being part of that, you go up to game two of Bucks Raptors in the Eastern Conference Finals. And when you see the Bucks play and they win six, one of the a team that wins 60 games like that, are there any similarities to Michael's Bulls or do you think it's just a different no. era and we, we appreciate different things? Well, for one thing, it's interesting. They don't have that second Hall of Famer on the team. You know, I think Giannis is on that track to go to the Hall of Fame. But oh, oh, you're totally disrespect Ilya Soba. No, I'm, yeah, I'm <laughs> the, the Bulls have had at least two with Michael and Scotty the whole time, and yes, you know the kind of the standard for for years was you had to have at least two Hall of Famers. Um, you know, lately it's been more like three or four even. Um, but I see this team. So is Giannis it, is Giannis Antetokounmpo that good? It's that they're that deep, and that's what the takeaway from a lot of people there was. And, and it's interesting. I've never seen so many people be converted and become believers in a team so late. You know, we're, we're midway through the conference finals, and a lot of that people in the building, their takeaway was this team could do it. They could beat the Warriors with or without Durant, especially if the Warriors don't get Durant back. Um, and it's just strange to see a buy-in on a team this late. Here we are mid-May. <laughs> and people are starting to believe in the Milwaukee Bucks. And part of it was probably, you know, they hadn't really seen the Bucks. And I doubt many people had seen them in person in the playoffs until this conference finals. And so now they get a look at them. Game one, the Raptors probably should have won. But game two, the Bucks just thoroughly dominated and took control of the series. And you saw everything that made them great. And, and you oh. felt it. Just being in the locker room, the camaraderie that they have, the belief in each other, the ease with which they're playing, the confidence that they have. Um, I'm not sure all of that would translate into the NBA Finals just because I try to tell people the Finals are such a completely different beast where you don't even recognize your own arena. You come in there and there's all these decals. Great. That's and, a great point. And, and you know, there, there's, you know, curtains hanging all over the place and you have to take a different path from your car to the locker room because there's so much stuff in the way. And you can't even recognize your own arena. Well, and, and, they, and they set up, yeah, they set up, and, and the arena itself on media days is all of a sudden you go from, you know, a little three guys around you in the locker room to 82 people at a podium on your own home court. And, and some of the questions are thoughtful and some of them are annoying. Some of them are humorous, but the bottom line is, you know, you, you're right. You can't prepare for the madness that is the finals until you're actually there. And that's why I say a new team in the finals going up against a team that's been there before, like that's one loss right there. I think that, that, that counts for one loss. And then it's a matter of whether or not they can compensate and how quickly they can get up to speed. I always say that, that Ohio or Oklahoma city team that went up against the heat in 2012 and people on the Thunder organization were telling me that, okay, the moment's just too big for them. And they thought they'd be back. I'll never forget that image. I don't know. Did you cover that finals? Yes. And yeah, and it was. Uh, remember it was a, that? It was that, a pre I think I was sort of rooting for OKC uh, early on too in the finals because I the, the place was so loud. It felt like Sacramento did in the early two thousands when Weber and Bibby were like giving the Lakers all they could handle. 
and you've had this small it market. It felt like the start of something, right? Yeah, it you felt know, like the right. Like, you're right. It felt like you're and, right. And it felt like wow, this could be around for a while. Even when they were losing, so there was this moment. They take all the stars out of the game. They're losing game five. They're going to lose the series. Um, the season's over, and Westbrook, Durant, and Harden were all standing on the baseline by the bench. They weren't sitting down. They're all standing next to each other. And I took a picture with my one of my earlier cell phone cameras, so it's not the greatest picture, but I do have it somewhere in my files. And you're looking at those three and thinking, okay, this is this is going to be the trio that's going to be here in June. They're going to be a fixture in the NBA Finals. And then mm. they never played a game together as a trio. You know, wow. Harden was gone, and then and then of course Durant came a couple years later. And it's it's crazy to think all three of those guys won MVP awards, but they never played another game together after that one. So that's why wow. you have to be careful anointing teams teams of the future. And some people are already starting to do that with the Milwaukee Bucks, and they're going to be around a long time. You just don't know what's going to happen, especially in this day and age when the player movement is so fast and furious. And you know the contracts are shorter. This, the, you know, the owners partly have themselves to blame for this this roster churn that we have now, because they didn't want to be on the hook for nope. seven year contracts when guys were were getting up there in their late thirties and were still pulling, you know, five at the time twenty twenty five million dollars a year. Yeah, they and don't so they don't want the Gilbert Arenas uh, broken yeah. deal where they had to. It exactly. became like your lemon for my lemon. You're right, and they, co- they completely uh, the idea that sort of. Um, they, they wanted to fix parity that way. Well, no, actually, you, you even heard it more in some ways because <laughs> yeah. it's sort of, it's, it's much easier to, um, like when I used to say when we play pickup ball, like if you want to play with your friends and keep the court for a while, much easier to do that in the NBA now um, because of those contracts. <laughs> the Mike Wise Show with me, Mike Wise, comes your way each Monday with great guests like Jeannie Buss, Jamal Crawford, Jason Whitlock of Fox Sports, and this week's guest, J.A. Adande. We also have three other weekly shows from Pure Hoops Media. Each Wednesday, Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko come your way with Catch and Shoot, where they mix great hoop discussion with humor and some great guests. Each Thursday, it's our newest show, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks, with Monica McNutt and her cast of characters. And every Friday, yes, the Pure Hoops podcast, with my friends BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. Please check all of them out. Listen, download, rate, review, subscribe, and enjoy. My guest is Jay Donde. He is the director of sports journalism at Northwestern University, a 10-year vet at ESPN, Washington Post, Chicago Sun-Times, LA Times. He's run the gamut of all the media, big media institutions in America, and now he's teaching kids um, besides other things. I, I just, um, I, when I think about uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and I, I, you said that there wasn't a buy-in on the Bucks early on, I think part of it was this was a, LeBron was out of the conference for the first time in eight years or for, I mean, for the first time in his career and for the first in, in the last eight years, whatever team he was on went to the finals. And so I thought it was a tremendous opportunity for about four or five different teams to leap through the hoop and say, we, you know, we can take, we, we can take his throne. We can be the team. And I thought for a while, I thought before John Wall got hurt um, and the Wizards floundered and fell apart. I thought the Wizards, I thought the Celtics, the Sixers, the Raptors. At what point did you think the Wizards? Seriously. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Two years ago, I know, I'm saying two years ago. Two years ago, okay. Two years ago, two years ago, they were a a few possessions from beating the Celtics in a game seven. You're right, you're right. And that that would be their first Eastern Conference Finals since whatever, the, the West Unseld days. And so I'm not saying that they were going to win an NBA Finals with the West. 
I'm not saying that they would have beat LeBron James, but I thought that with that roster and with a couple upgrades, they had a shot. Now, I live in D.C. As you know, I'm probably a, a worse homer than half the fans here, and maybe I was a little being unrealistic, but I thought they had something. And and I look now at, like, Philadelphia. Uh, I, I mean, I knew that Philadelphia, either Philadelphia was going to be angry, Boston should be really angry because they had a shot, and, and, and whoever was going to lose in the second round could go home and think to themselves, God, we, we had a shot. I'm not so sure that you can feel that after if, if this finals, if this Eastern Conference finals goes five games. I mean, I think the Bucks well, are for real for, for the next three years. Yeah, but like I said, we, we thought the, the Thunder would be there. Um, yeah. You know, the Bucks are going to have some free agency issues to address. Um, you know, Giannis, it, the, the cool thing is it, it feels like Giannis wants to be there long term. You know, like Giannis is, is – and he doesn't even really necessarily want to recruit free agents. You know, he just wants to be there and anybody wants to join him, have at it. But, you know, this is his team and this is going to be his city. Uh, you get that same feeling out of Damian Lillard. You know, they might not have the, the potential and the upside that the Bucks have, but it's been pretty cool seeing him, you know, really establish himself in these playoffs. And you also get the feeling that he's not itching to go somewhere else and to, to team up with some other guys. Um it, it looks right for the Bucks. They've, they've got a beautiful new building, which should help the revenues and help them stay competitive on that front. Um, you know, the other thing is this, this, the small market notion isn't what it was because some mm. of these guys are so rich that only small market teams, you know, including the Bucks ownership group, that, you know, it's, it's not strictly a matter of what type of revenue can they generate with that team in that market. Um, these guys have so much money, you know, from their outside businesses that they can, they can, choose to pour as much as they want into this team in order to do what it takes to make them competitive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all of that is true. Um, and I, and you, and you wonder what the future of the box is going to be. I think it's great. I think, you know, I, I think that the, the idea that sort of, I don't know, they'd be San Antonio North for a few years if they could actually pull it off. And, and, and they hadn't been that, I guess, they hadn't been that relevant since, um, yeah, I have to go back to Michael Red and Ray Allen and that team, and then before that, shoot, Don Nelson's teams. So yeah, the early eighties. Yeah, I mean they haven't had a player like Giannis. Like every big number he puts up, like when he goes for thirty and fifteen, yeah. whatever. The only name in the record book is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Giannis is probably the I, he's so dynamic. He's such a different big man. I don't even know who to compare him to. Who would you compare him to? There's, there's, there's nothing like him, and, and it's, yeah. it's he's so unique, and he's so gifted athletically, and just the physical specimen. So before the the game the other night, he was you know just on the court getting some warm up shots in, and there are all these TV cameras lined up and tripods and reporters doing their live shots before the game, and there were people on the court working out with Giannis and coaches helping him and rebounding for him, and he just stood above all of it. And he, he was like a good foot and a half taller than all the equipment and the people. And he just looks like he's on a different plane. You know, he's, he's somewhere, someone operating just on a completely different plane and level than everyone else. So mm. you start from that. And then, um, so it's interesting. So, so somebody said, well, Shaq is big, but, and Shaq, Shaq was there at the game, of course, working for TNT. And I walked out of the arena with him and Shaq is just so completely different. Shaq is just massive. And just the, the space that he occupies <laughs> right. Yeah. And his ability to, to physically overpower. And I know, yeah. you know, you know Shaq well and worked with him. 
Sure. But Giannis is different in that he changes the the like the landscape and the geometry and the his ability to cover ground. You know, his ability to get mm. places to to get from the three point line to the basket with one dribble with, because of those giant strides, or his ability to to you know clog the middle and then still get out and contest the three point shot. So mm. with Giannis, it's more of the 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 landscape and the spacing of the courts as opposed to Shaq, just the physical. Um, power that's a, that that's a great distinction that he really broke it down because because Giannis has God, he has such an economy of movement like it's as if you know Tim Duncan were all of a sudden um, you know had a 48 inch vertical or something and it's the and, same height well, and that's the crazy thing too is like Kevin Durant with Duncan so there's a great picture yeah. and LeBron too so I, I think of the, like these still photos so LeBron in that 2007 finals when he, he goes to the finals for the first time and they get swept by the Spurs and they, they cross paths like in the, in the hallway on the way to and from the interview room. And you realize LeBron is basically the same height as Tim Duncan. And then same thing with Kevin Durant and what turned out to be Duncan's last game in the playoffs. You know, you see them talking and you realize Kevin Durant is Tim Duncan's height, but plays a completely different game without mm. shooting three pointers. And, and Giannis you know, is seven. Is he seven? Is he a real, he's, Giannis is a real seven, one or seven, two, right? I'd, I'd say tops out at seven or just under seven. Okay. You know, just like Durant is probably seven. We like to say six eleven. Um, mm. You know, I wouldn't say they go over that, but their their arms are so long. But it's weird because they, you know, they play in such a different part of the court than Tim Duncan occupied and Shaq occupied. Even though you know they they have similar heights, especially Duncan. Duncan again, Shaq is just such a unique physical specimen. But you know, to see these guys who are basically eye to eye with Tim Duncan. And yet they play completely different games. Their ball handling ability, even more so than when Magic was six nine handling the ball. These guys are six eleven, seven feet handling the ball like a guard. And well, it, even the Joker, the man, evolution the, of the game. I mean, the like like uh, Jurkic, man. The, he just has a he has a nose for passing, you know, and hitting guys not just that open, but on their fingertips as they're cutting, as if he's a point guard. I'm like, well, this guy's just. He, he's, you know, I don't know, he's 24 in real life and he's 55. He's got the 55 soul of an old guy. He moves guy. like a 55-year-old. He makes basketball look really hard and really easy all at once, <laughs> right? Because, right? like, the way he moves, you're like, God, it's like he's laboring yeah. out there. But then the way he just has a soft touch and the way he finds everybody, like, man, he makes basketball look really yeah. simple. And, I, and also, like, because we get to know some of these guys um, outside of the game a little bit as as much as you can peripherally unless you, you know, go out to eat with them or whatever. They, they just seem like Giannis and, and guys like the Joker and, and Steph and other guys, some of the most down-to-earth um, you know, I, I always said that there was a part of the NBA that there would always be 12 guys that you just gave the gave the game a bad name and i don't know who it was at whatever time but these guys like all they do is give the game a good name they're just they're just yeah. regular people and it's funny even the, the you know the bad guy like ron artest was public enemy number one at one point for the nba right but you know even he became beloved no, he's such a redemptive and, quality though right i mean it's sort of like he, figure, he ends up you know, going shoot the piece. guy i was in dc he went to capitol hill and basically talked to senators about uh, mental health and and how teams had not told him um, not to take his medication because they cut off his edge at some point. I mean, he's just like, he was, the guy was real courageous. He talked about his, his, his mental health issues. And I thought, man, this yeah. How can you not bipolar and all and that. Weird. Yeah. And the villains are like, 
okay, we were mad at LeBron because he went on TV to announce his free agency. <laughs> we, were, we were mad at Kevin Durant because he chose to go from Oklahoma City to the Bay Area. Well, he and, also had you know, five play on a good team. Like, but, but, okay, but, like, are, are those – that reason to be upset at You know, no. like, you know, but like both LeBron and Durant, like, they they haven't had a whiff of trouble, right? Like, no. I think LeBron might have had a, a moving violation in his car, like, when he was in high school. That's the right. closest any type of police involvement he's had, you know. And, um, you know, Durant, you know, has been very clean, no no trouble with the law or anything like that. And and so we get mad at these guys just because they, they exercise their right to free agency, you know. But it, yeah. it shows you that, you know, the league is in a good place and that we almost have to manufacture the bad guys. And I, I do think you need bad guys. And I think you need characters and heroes and villains and conflict and drama, all that. It makes it more compelling. Um, and, and one thing we're losing, too, is rivalries, you know. So, um, you know, with the teams change, so obviously yeah. Golden State and, and Cleveland was the modern-day Lakers and the Celtics, right, but always meeting in the finals. But that's over because LeBron left. So we only had four years of that rather than a decade of that like we did in the 60s. Yeah, I know. I, you you speak the truth on all this. Uh, Jay Donnie is my guest. Um, he's uh, thoughtful on many issues. Um, I, I want to go just to play with this a little bit before before we knock it off. And, and it's um, because you've written very uh, thoughtfully and with a lot of conviction on many uh, issues near and dear to my heart, including the what I call the renaissance of social conscience among athletes. The, um I don't want to say, I remember Larry Bird and Billy Hunter almost at the same time had quotes saying, the league needs another American-born white superstar to really take off. And it's not because it's racist. It's just because people want to see people that look like them and are from them, their area, the, the, the season ticket buyers. And I'm not saying that every NBA star has crossed over to um, not a black guy, just a ball player. But I, I do feel like, we, you know, they're the, the the greatest whatever white star I can think of that's from America now. I mean, JJ Reddick, Kevin Love, maybe uh, uh, Gordon Hayward. I mean, I don't think, and those guys aren't even like in the top fifteen players. So I guess what yeah. I'm getting at and getting at is, do we even need? Have we gone? I'm not. I'm not saying the rate the that anything in America is post racial. That's the worst term of all. But are we past? the notion that we need an American born white superstar for, for the NBA to thrive the way it did in the bird magic, Michael days. Um, I, I think, I think we bought into these guys so much that it doesn't matter. I think Larry Bird's greatest legacy is that we don't need another Larry Bird right now. We absolutely ah, needed good. him in the 1980s. Absolutely. That, that, you know, it, it's funny. People say magic and, and I've, I, I bought into that too. And I came up with that and, you know, I was raised on that Lakers Celtics rivalry and magic and bird. And it was always Magic and Bird, Magic and Bird. And really, the more I think about it, you needed Bird, right? If if it was Magic versus Jordan, I don't think you would have had the success that the NBA enjoyed in the 80s and the foundation that was laid for today if if it had been two, two African-American players. But the fact mm. that Larry Bird was white, American-born, was, you know, multiple MVP and a champion, the league needed that at that time. And... um I think basketball fans have evolved past that. It, you know, the the league will be fine without another Larry Bird coming around. I think it could go to new heights. It, it could go up a level. I think if we yeah. were to have another one, but the the very existence of the league, which 
even though the existence wasn't threatened, but it, it was certainly on the ropes before mm-hmm. they got there. Remember, the, the games were on tape delay, right? Shown oh, as the NBA Finals yeah. were being shown at 10.30 p.m. on tape delay. No, um, you know, yeah. and, and you wouldn't have had this, this boom that you've had. And I, I think we've gotten to the point now where, you know, like a, a Jokic can be embraced. Um, you know, look at Dirk Nowitzki's popularity in Dallas. Um, and how many athletes in Dallas do you think are more popular than Dirk Nowitzki right now, even though he's born in Germany? Um, but he's like, he's one of them. So, like on two fronts, the, the progress that we've made in terms of African-American and the, the acceptance of European-born and foreign-born players. You yes. Know, Manu Ginobili was super popular in, in San Antonio and around the league. So um, on, on both of those fronts, the, the league doesn't need it. Now, I think it would help. You know, um, it would really be beneficial. Ask any TV executive, and I'm sure they would love to market the current Larry Bird right now. That, that would help. It, it, it's interesting. You, there, there's still some changes, and this, this might be baseball or this might be um, – the Chicago White Sox in particular, uh, a friend of mine was just in town and he went down to the White Sox game and he wanted to get a Tim Anderson jersey. Tim Anderson's the only African-American player on the current White Sox roster and just like a jersey shirt, right? And um, they didn't have any in the store. Like they had to go to the storage and get it and they, they got one to him later. Like they literally had to call him and bring it to a seat where he was sitting at the stadium. But I thought that was telling. That, that's you can't good. walk in. That, you can walk crazy. into the White Sox team store, and you know you you still see it. Like I, I remember going it's, to the York Jets indi- game years ago, an and all the, on, yeah, it's, a, it's an indictment on how you know the game of Jackie Robinson has just fallen so short in the African American community, and not even that, and not and that in, in particular, but but also in general. I I don't. There's just a lot of kids that. They don't. They might play baseball when they're younger, but they don't stick with it because you know. There's. It's. I think it's some of it's society. We're we're all about immediate gratification. It's why soccer will never top basketball or football here because you know it takes. It, it, while other people see this great strategy and these in these long setups and attacks before a goal in our country, we want immediate gratification. You know, nobody, nobody wants to have a conversation at a game that lasts 20 minutes between innings because that's not who we are anymore as a society. And it's too bad in many ways. I hate to sound like, you know, get off my lawn guy, but I think it's sad. (laughs) But I think again, the progress and this might be unique to the NBA. So I think to be an NBA fan is, you know, for, for white fans of the NBA, they, they, they've moved past the point of, okay, I need, a white guy to root for, right? If you if you're gonna if you're gonna enjoy the NBA, if you're gonna be a season ticket holder, if you're gonna watch the games, you, you basically are starting from the pretense that you know most of the players on my team are gonna be African American, and mm. I, I noticed it at the um, you know, but but they don't feel the need to go out of their way. So at the Bucks game, you're, you're gonna see guys wearing Antetokounmpo jerseys, you know, tons yeah. of them. white people wearing Antetokounmpo jerseys, or throwback Ray yeah. Allen jerseys. Like you don't see people <laughs> hunting out. Pat Connaughton jerseys, you know, like, oh, I, you know, I want to represent the Bucks, but, you know, it's got to be white guys, so let me rock a Connaughton. I don't think I saw a single Pat Connaughton jersey. Um, it's not like that in the NFL or in Major League Baseball, you know, but but yeah. NBA fans, you know, that subset of America, um, and, you know, don't be fooled in thinking that the NBA is taking over, is bigger than the NFL, none of that, but the subset of America that's into the NBA, um, they are perfectly willing to um, you know, to, to to just 
look past race and, and focus on who are the players that I enjoy, regardless of their race. Yeah. And you just, you just crystallize why I like the league so much and why I have such a problem with the NFL and what it's become. And even the Super Bowl, I thought it was, it's just, it was almost um, insulting the way in which they sort of wanted to take, take the baton of uh, social elixir and okay, great. John Lewis <laughs> got a ticket to the Super Bowl and he got to be there and he should have been recognized, but you know what? He, he probably should have been recognized 10 years ago at a Super Bowl. And, and exactly. it just, it, it's the thing it? Bob. <laughs> oh, the whole thing. Yeah. Really it was just for, it was, uh, yeah, it was sort of like, look at us. We, we pay attention to inner city issues now. And yet, no, you pay attention to them because these guys threatened your uh, market share and they got some uh, like like union workers. They got some concessions finally from you because you're so awful as people. Uh, and you finally looked at it as, OK, we need to appease some of the people who have convictions beyond football in our league. And we can't just call them all SOBs like the president. Um, I just think it's funny how Trump has become this lightning rod and the Warriors and other teams that you know visit the White House. It's such a it's such a, a litmus test of who you are in America, and it, it, you know everybody says, "Well, I just want to see the office." But still, if you win, like it, I mean, I can't tell you how many people um, in my newsroom that I'm working at now in in DC, WSA nine, uh, that um, African American employees are like, "Oh man, Tiger messed up." Tiger went all in with the, with, with they, well, guys said Tiger went all in with Cheeto Jesus. I don't know what he's thinking. And, um, and, then, and, and he I, I just thought it was BJ funny. Like, oh. <laughs> and he missed the cut. Yeah, it's karma. Get the Congressional Medal of Freedom. Uh, all right. Uh, one, one or two more lightning round with J.A. Donde. He's been great, giving us some extra time. He's the, he's the uh, <clears throat> Director of Sports Journalism at Northwestern University. He's also my friend, and he's a great journalist. Um, Jay, really quick, I I, I had um, Ryan McDonough on here not too long ago, the former Phoenix Suns GM. Uh, now he's all over the radio since he's done our podcast. I don't want to say that your career is going to blow up after this because it already <laughs> has been there, but I'm just I'm just telling you. Um, he, I, you know, I, I read these Wikipedia things sometimes and I go, ah, this is BS, this is bullshit. And, but, but I read this thing and it's suddenly like Will McDonough, his dad was tight with Whitey Bulger, the gangster for a while. And I was like, <laughs> and he gives us this great story of the whole thing. And I was like, I, it, it was just tremendous. And like how he visited him in Kansas. And I was like, wow. And he goes, yeah, I got to oh, play it down crazy. a little bit. You know, it just had happened. Yeah. And, and yeah, it was nuts. But I, I read this about you. It says that you were the son of uh, is it Desiree uh, Desire and Elizabeth yeah, Oberstein Adande? Yeah, Desiree yeah. and Elizabeth uh, Adande. Uh, your but grandfather, Gerson Gus Oberstein. What's uh, that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, my, go my ahead. mom never took my my mom never took my father's last name. So just, okay, just, all right. Oberstein. Yeah, then my grandfather was Gus Oberstein. Gus Oberstein. Uh, was a violinist who also played with uh, Jasmine, uh, Joe Rowland, and Charlie Parker, the bird, and later with the Berkeley Symphony. I, is that all true? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, that part, if you got that off the Wikipedia, that part's true. The, the part they once had where they, they said I was romantically involved with Halle Berry, that part is not true. <laughs> I actually had to go in and erase that myself. <laughs> so she wouldn't oh, sue God. me for Why would you erase anything. that? 
I know. I, I just I, I believe in accuracy. I believe in accuracy. As much as I would like to have that out there. Yeah, uh, but you could be not you, true. That's the kind of thing. That's but, the kind of thing Rihanna would see, and she would just be like, <laughs> "Oh my gosh, she went out with Holly. I guess he'd go out with, with me." Um, <laughs> but the part of my grandpa right, that he actually that, played behind the doctor for a while. Um, so the, there's a famous yeah. story. Uh, my mom and my grandfather at the airport one time in San Francisco. He was picking her up. He flew into San Francisco where they live and um, they passed by Sinatra and, and, you know, my grandfather had played with him way back when. And um, uh, he says, hi, Frank. And Sinatra pauses. He says, hold the phone. I know you. And it, it didn't hit him at first, but then my grandfather <laughs> had to explain. That's true. Oh, man, that's tremendous. And Oberstein, the Jewish name. So you uh, half black, half like, what would be your ethnicity or, or do you even identify? Does it even matter? I mean, if you, and I, I won't do a 23andMe because I'm not trying to have, as other people have access to all my DNA and all that. So I don't believe in all that stuff. But I but I know from, yeah. you know, the family historians, we actually have one on my mom's side who's, who's traced it way back to like the 15th century, I think. But, um, you know, if you go back, you can mm. find African, Dutch, Portuguese, Spanish, Russian, which I didn't even know about till after mm. my maternal grandmother passed away and I saw her birth certificate, country of parents' birth, Russia. I, was, I didn't even know about that. So so all those, all those countries but, are in the mix. I'm convinced though you got your voice from your grandfather, because I've always thought, you know, if Jay wasn't a sports writer, he could like host a late night jazz show, like, like Miles Davis. <laughs> my, my grandfather or, you know, didn't like, have the voice. You just got that smooth. You got that smoothness. Yeah, that's not from that's yeah. not from my mom's oh, side of the family. Probably my father's. Okay, yeah, right. he he just played the violin. It's it, it's funny because um, we were talking about. So I, I was at an event today at Northwestern, and there's a scholarship luncheon with the benefactors and the scholarship recipients. And the president of the school, Morton Shapiro, was talking about studies that have been done that show how the trajectory can change for um, for the, the the people in the bottom twenty percent, twenty percent economically in America. If they, so typically, if you're in the bottom twenty percent of the of the uh, you know economic levels, you only have an eight percent chance of making it to the top twenty percent. Um, but as you go to wow. to high-level public schools and then the elite private colleges, you can get up to a 40 or 50 percent chance of making it up into the upper 20 percent. Um, you know, and, and so they, we, re, we really try to emphasize trying to give people first-generation college students, first-time college students, Pell Grant recipients, an opportunity to go to a school, an opportunity to, to get on that path. And kind of my path, you could say, began way back with my grandfather when um, he wanted to go to Juilliard and his father really didn't want to, but he made a deal with him. He said, okay, you know, we'll set up an audition, and if you can get in, then I'll pay for you to go. And he auditioned, and, you know, he wowed him, and he got in. And so that set him on that track and kind of yeah. set him on that career Great course story. and life course. And, you know, he was he met my grandmother while he was playing in a, a band or orchestra that, that played. He, he did these cruise ships for a while, and, and that's where he met my grandmother was, was playing on one of the cruise ships. Um, so, like, you know, you think of these moments in your family history and, and him passing that audition and getting into Juilliard, <laughs> you know, oh, led to everything I, that where I'm at I right now, Port sitting in my apartment looking out over Lake Michigan. Uh, you know, it's such a great story, like, like the fork in the roads in life and what they and the sort of 
what I would call the tectonic plates, how they sort of shift a little bit and, and you go a completely different direction and the landscape goes a completely, and, and that happened with your dad. I mean, we're just in DC this week with all this news about if you, if you live in Southeast, you're liable to live 21 years less than somebody in, in, in Woodley Park area, which you know is by the zoo and mostly old white people. And it's just like 21 years, uh, and, 21 and it's like, what, like years. Miles, and it was just how, sad. How far apart is like four or five miles apart, right? Like how, seven miles, seven miles, seven miles, right? Wow. Seven miles. And it's just so wrong on so many levels. And I, you know, it's like, uh, you know, poor black communities don't need to be told this, but it just bothered me so much that it's like, it's, it's not a black problem. It's a freaking societal problem. We need to fix yeah. that. And, and that you could, you know, uh, what, you know, we talk about like how many people in there in this world would give for 21 more years on earth. Uh, shoot. I give 21.2 was the number I give, I I'd give my left arm for 0.2, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah. yeah. And so I just, it just bothered me on so many levels, but it, I love those fork in the roads. All right. A couple, couple quick ones. Greatest interview uh, that, that Jay Adandi has ever had with a professional athlete. Whew. <laughs> These get harder, or or, or, or somebody in the sports world. Magic is great. Magic was always great. Um, Brand really good. Brandon Roy. Grand, I'll say Grand Hill. Grand Hill. Grand Hill. That's fair. I I would put yeah, him just, in my just top five. Because I had two, two columns where where he just totally, I just turned the column over to him. He was so good. I just basically like just started one in paragraph after paragraph of him. So very few people have done that. So I'm gonna say Grand Hill. All right. 1986 Celtics, 2017 Golden State Warriors. Maybe two, when did they go 16 and one last year? No, no, the year before. Uh, two years ago. Yeah, 2017 right? Golden. Yeah, 2017 Golden State Warriors, 1996 Chicago Bulls. You had to pick one all-time great three? team. Yep. Bulls. Just can't ah, go against my. Come on. I can't go against Michael Jordan. I know you. One twenty-five out of his last twenty-six playoff series. Who's beating Michael Jordan? Who's beating prime Michael Jordan in the nineties? In the nineties, with those rules, probably nobody. You're right. Um, all right. Uh, most um, less than obvious uh, angle story that you've ever written, where like you you took something that you thought was just small and insignificant, and it turned into a story about life and something bigger than you ever imagined um one of my favorites was ray allen and the celtics and outliers the, the malcolm gladwell book so i, I saw him reading mm. it in the locker room before a game and in la he, and i asked him about ray, it. ray allen was said, reading okay. the malcolm gladwell ray, ray allen yeah okay, ray allen was reading the malcolm gladwell book and we talked about it a little bit. I said, you know what? I'm going to read it. And next time you're out here, um, we'll have a discussion about it. She said, okay. So I got the book, read it. And I had a conversation with Ray about it. And I, I just thought it turned into an interesting column. It was just something different, you know? And so looking at, looking at how the concepts and outliers could explain the success of the Boston Celtics, that Celtics team, you know, that, that big three, Ray Allen, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce mm. group, um, you know, and how some of the concepts from outliers apply to that. And I, I like doing stories like that, and that that one was was pretty fun just because it was different. And last one, your your favorite um, colleague over the years, not named Mike Wise. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go with Wilbon. He's been such a great friend and mentor. I knew you were me. gonna say Wilbon, um, and that's a good choice. Say, you know, he he just 
he's he's shared so much with me, you yeah. know, opened my eyes to so much, uh, you know, had me in his home so many times. Um, I, like no one, no one has given me anything close to as much as Mike Wilbon has given me personally and mm. professionally. So that's easy call. As many great people as I've been fortunate to work with, mm. um, you know, he, he really stands out. Yeah, but Will is one of the fun, he's one of the only guys I know, Jay, that that is, I guess, that successful and people don't root against him to fail. <laughs> like I could tell you I could tell you 50 people that want want Kornheiser to crash and burn. I could tell you 100,000 people that want Lubica to crash and burn. He kind of has already. So people are happy. Um, and, and I could tell you like, well. I, you know, me, I'm congenial. I get along with everybody. I, I actually, you know, if, if Peter Vesey, um, if Peter Vesey fell off the earth and he had one hand and I had to grab him, I might not, I might not grab him. But he's the only person. <laughs> he, he put a hit out on you in his column. I still remember that guy. I remember yeah, him remember putting that. a hit on you in you his column. That? that was like yeah, in the great a, New York newspaper yeah, put, battles. Yeah, he put a yeah, head he on, did. on you. And it was like it was it, it was like I was I was I was half honored and I was half sad because I always liked Peter Vesey and thought, you know, like, oh, he talked to me. And then all of a sudden it's like he's put, he's using Biggie lyrics saying, if he gotta go, I gotta go. And I'm like, oh jeez. Like like, think like, about it, like it was back. over just because uh, you know, you guys had different opinions about the direction of the Knicks, right? And who should be calling the shot. Right, like, oh no, no, it was, it was over, great. Right? Yeah, no. Yeah, no, it was one of the great like, sort of media <laughs> media wars. Oh, it was it anyway. was you. All right, so and Messi yeah. and was it I sold it? Who's who's like the third? Well, because yeah, were, so I sold. Well, 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 the thing was, is I well, sort of like I and me and it was like a triangle. Yeah, I think maybe 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 O'Connor were were like invested in Jeff because, you know, he was the kind of the mailroom guy that got promoted to CEO. We right. wanted to see him do well. And, and we knew that everybody was trying to screw him behind the scenes. And then, and Vessi was Ernie Grunfeld's guy at the time. Right. And it's funny now because Ernie and I, like I call Ernie once a week to see if he's okay after he lost his job. I'm so pathetic. Uh, but, but I, you know, like I like Ernie now and we become, but, but at the time um, Ernie was sort of uh Vessi was Ernie's guy because that, you know, Ernie, came up uh, with that. Vessi was the NBA columnist for the post at the time that Ernie was playing for the Knicks and he became one of his sources, I'm sure later. And, and, uh, and, and sort of the guys that, you know, drove to their mansions in New Canaan, uh, Lupica and others were in uh, Checkets people because, Chekets, yeah. because Dave Checkets at the time was uh, living in New Canaan next to Mike Lupica and they shared. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. They probably, they probably shared Martha Stewart recipes. I have no idea. So, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a funny time. It was great. Uh, Yeah, it was, it was entertaining. Hey, this has been fun. I I really appreciate the time and it, uh, this podcast world is different for me, but you, you made it, uh, more than enjoyable. So thank you. That was, it's great to see you taking advantage of the new media and, you know, best of luck to you and everyone at Pure Hoops. (laughs) All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Episode 19 in the books. Can you believe they've kept me this long? <laughs> Thank you, Jay Adande. You join a great list of media guests, including Rick Buecher, Howard Beck, Frank Isola, Jason Whitlock. On the list goes. Thanks, Bruce Bernstein, for putting this together as usual. Pure Hoops Media couldn't have done it without you. And especially to all my listeners, download, rate, enjoy us. Shoot, listen to all the other shows at Pure Hoops Media. I guarantee you won't be disappointed. And, and I appreciate you. I really do. See you next week.
The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.